Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. Every episode I track down a book that... Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. Every episode I track down a book that I find particularly interesting about some aspect of Africa and interview the author. In this programme, the book is Season of Rains, Africa in the World by Stephen Ellis. It's a book that covers big subjects like the broad sweep of African history and whether development is a solution to some of the challenges facing the continent, and with a few thoughts left over about what Africa's future might hold. I found it fascinating, and here's the interview. Okay, well, joining me on the line from over over the North Sea in uh, the Netherlands is Professor Stephen Ellis, the author of Season of Rains, Africa in the World. Uh, Professor Ellis, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, I really enjoyed reading this book. It gave me a lot of new information about Africa, but also uh, gave me quite a few new ways in which I could think about Africa, its history, and the challenges facing Africa at the minute. So uh, we can get into all of that in one second, but why don't we just start off with uh, finding a little bit more about yourself, um, your background, where you came from, and obviously, ultimately, how you came to write this book. Well, uh, I'm British. I come from the what we call the Midlands of England. So I don't really have any family connection with Africa. Um, but when I was 18 years old, um, in search really of adventure more than anything, I, I went to Africa as a, as a volunteer teacher. And um, uh, I went to Cameroon. So I was teaching English at a school in Cameroon. And of course, to an 18-year-old who knew very little about Africa and had never been there, this was very interesting and, uh, I guess, rather exotic. Um, But I became very interested. I mean, I was already interested in history. And while I was there, I was fascinated to meet some, um, some, what seemed to me, incredibly old men. But they probably weren't that old. It was just that I was only 18. But um, they were talking about their memories of they could remember the German occupation of Cameroon because, of course, it was originally a German colony before it became... French and British, and um, I, I just had, I knew nothing about African history, and I was fascinated by this, and then I traveled quite widely through West Africa, and I went to, I remember being very struck in those days by Mali, which of course is a country which, with a, with a great deal of obvious history, you know, the old buildings in Mopti and uh, Sebu, um, uh, and, uh, and so then I decided when I went to university, I was eventually, I eventually wanted to study African history, so that's what I ended up doing. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that, led, that led me into, um, in, really into a career, one way or another, with Africa. I mean, I've worked as a journalist, i worked for Amnesty International, and now I'm an academic. Yes, and you're based over in uh, Leiden, am I correct? I've, well, I've got two jobs, one in Leiden and one in Amsterdam, and Leiden's really only 30 minutes on the train from Amsterdam, so I, I work in two places, but in the Amsterdam area, you could say. And I live in Amsterdam. And infrastructure is a little bit more uh, negotiable than in Cameroon. Well, um, the Netherlands is a small country, um, 
and uh, the, the, inf the public infrastructure is absolutely excellent. Netherlands is also one of the most crowded countries on earth, so we, we do need good infrastructure for getting people around because um, uh, the, the roads tend to be full all of the time. I remember reading in The Economist uh, three, four years ago, maybe a bit, bit before that, there was a uh, fantastic article about uh, Cameroon and the journalist, the way that he was showing the problems of, of transport infrastructure and markets in Africa, was he joined a, uh, it was a truck that was delivering Guinness and Stout up country. And basically the whole thing was a travelogue showing just how many things stood in the way of being able to deliver, you know, the cans or bottles of stout up country and how much that added to the price. And uh, his point as a journalist was was explaining just why so many bits of, of, of Africa find it difficult to function normally economically. Uh, and it was a, it was a great insight for me. Yes. And uh, as it happens, just the other week, I was listening to a lecture by the chief economist for Africa from the World Bank. And he was making exactly the same point. He had statistics showing the increases in price on various long lorry journeys in different parts of the world, including a number of African countries. And the markups in Africa were far and away bigger than anywhere else, making exactly the same point. And I think even without doing research of that sort, it's very noticeable when you travel around Africa, um, especially if you're in public transport, that you get stopped quite a lot at, at police roadblocks where I have to say the main point of the roadblock is to shake down travellers. In other words, is to is to take money from them mm -hmm. uh, rather than to um, perform any sort of public good like, you know, checking that the taxi's got good brakes and stuff like that. Um, and, and it's really a way whereby um, police officers and other officials uh, increase their salary mm. rather, rather than else you find it you find it all over africa absolutely and it increases corruption increases uh, cost of goods and that's before you even get to uh, getting from one country to another across many of the borders within the, the landlocked parts of africa yeah that's right that's right so anyway let's return to the book what is it yeah. about it's quite a slim volume but there's a lot in there what's the philosophy behind it what's the idea behind it Maybe it will help me to answer that question if I just speak briefly about how I came to write it. Um, I, I, I actually read a paper to the, a meeting at the Dutch Foreign Ministry, and I was looking at, the, at, at actually corruption between African countries and, and places outside the rest of the world. And one of the officials there said, this is very interesting, Would I, you know, could I maybe expand on some of this? So it really started off in thinking about the position of Africa in the world. And this, when I started, it was at the beginning of 2008. And of course, this was really the period when the, what up till then had been a, a crisis in US housing markets, it became a worldwide financial crisis. So that as I went on, and I was able to travel to places like Dubai and uh, Hong Kong and Beijing, which are rapidly becoming more important with uh, trade and finance in Africa. Um, I was, a, I was able to see Africa's changing role in a world which itself is in rapid mutation. So that's what it's really about. It's about Africa's place in the world in the broadest sense. And being a historian myself, I, I do believe that, uh, first of all, Africa's place in the world is easier to understand if you kind of, if you, if you understand where it's coming from, if I could put it that way. And secondly, I'm struck by 
the fact that so many people, particularly in the Western world, but also in Africa itself sometimes, seem to have rather peculiar views on this matter. And I, 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 I'm convinced that these views, um, you know, come out of a particular reading of history, which for various reasons in the book um, have been, uh, has been applied to Africa. What exactly do you mean by that? To put it, to put it most simply, I would say that a lot, a, a lot of people in the world, particularly in, in the West, have become convinced that Africa is kind of stuck in the past. And I think many Africans came to believe that, particularly around the time of independence, because people came to think that, okay, if we're stuck in the past, then with a, a little bit of technical expertise, maybe some capital injections, a bit of aid, maybe some new equipment of some sort, maybe, maybe a crash course in education, we'll suddenly get into the same state of affairs as Europe and the, and the United States. I mean, this is what we call development. And I think it's a profoundly misleading, very ideological way of looking things, looking at things, which has actually caused far more misunderstandings than it's cleared up. You talk about um, the development industry's messianic quest for the leader who will fix everything. And you talk about Museveni, Nyerere, Kagame, Zanawe. And you also mention that current darling of the West, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. There's a quote that I'd like to read out from your book. Foreign cheerleading for progress in Africa often amounts to little more than the projection of personal ideologies onto a space on the map sufficiently little known as to accommodate fantasies of every type. They're pretty harsh words. Well, they are, but I really believe that to be neither more nor less than the truth. Explain that. We've, we've created, we meaning the combination of those involved inside and outside Africa, have created a, an extraordinary industry which is based on development. It started off with a, what seemed in the 1940s and 50s like a reasonable expectation that with some technical improvements, life could be made better for, for Africans very quickly. And when this didn't happen, people started looking for constantly for, for instant fixes. And in particular, it's produced a need for for, for, for new political heroes, people who are thought to, 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 be, to be able to create development almost instantly. And of course, they don't exist. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about post-independence heroes all the way back to Nkrumah just after independence and Nyerere, obviously, in, in Tanzania, all the way through to the more modern ones that are better known, for instance, uh, Museveni in, in Uganda. That's right. I mean, they're what are sometimes called a little bit cruelly donor darlings, because I think if you look back, it's, it's, it's clear that there is, a, there is a tendency on the part of people in the development business and through them, Western publics more widely, to, to look for heroes in Africa and, of course, the opposite of heroes, which is villains. So African politics tends to be viewed very much in terms of the good guys. I mean, uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Nelson Mandela, and there are other ones who've come and gone, like Museveni, and in the past, Nyerere, and so on. Um, or else villains, you know, Idi Amin, Bokassa, maybe Charles Taylor. Whereas, in the end, I mean, African politicians are no different from politicians anywhere else. Um, they, they have a bit of, some, some are better than others. Um, some try to do good, but don't always succeed. Some miscalculate. Some are lazy. Some are very hardworking, like all over the world. What 
instead would you suggest? In the book, you mention engaging with uh, with local institutions that seem to function far better than than any outside idea of governance. Uh, you mention religious networks. This is a difficult one. I would say that the first thing to be done is to be very pragmatic. In other words, if somebody's trying to say, well, um, you know, we, how are we to settle some sort of political or economic problem in a specific context, like in one particular country, they should be very pragmatic. They'd say, well, what is the true nature of this problem? Um, how do things work around here? Which people or which institutions might be able to do something about this? And above all, to try and understand the local context and talk to people. Because it's astonishing how often aid officials, sometimes even people who spent quite a long time living in a country, do tend to come in with important solutions. So I, I think that's very important. And of course, it's become more difficult because many African countries have become what are known in the, often known as fragile states and sometimes as failed states, uh, which is, a, I mean, I understand what's meant by these labels, but in some ways they're quite misleading. But, but it means that the, the, the way service delivery is conventionally done, in other words, often by or under the strategic guidance of some government department or another, often doesn't work in Africa. So you have to look around and say, well, what might work in particular contexts? And you, you can point to institutions and networks that do have real social purchase that, that people recognize as being valid and that have influence. But um, it, it, it has frankly become difficult because of this, uh, because of the, the political erosion or the erosion of state apparatuses that's taken place over the last 30 years or so. How does the Africa of today fit in with uh, worldwide shortages of things like uh, water, food, oil, etc.? You, you talk a bit about this, and I, I find it difficult to work out exactly where it leaves me, um, because you talk about the, the positives, but, you know, Africa, this land with great resources, but also you talk about the way that because certain aspects of Africa are underdeveloped, for instance, uh, property markets, etc., it can actually lead to another form of exploitation. Well, I mean, what, what, what I'm pointing out is that, uh, as is well known, Africa does have great natural resources. I mean, this is very often said. And, of course, it's a huge continent, so that you have some parts with very fertile land. You have uh, big reserves of oil now being discovered, in, particularly in West Africa. Um, there's you know, copper, iron ore, etc. And, of course, agricultural land. But there's also large parts of Africa... Um, which may have poor land, or in particular, which have a problem of insufficient rainfall. And we're seeing this very much at the moment in East Africa, where there's, uh, there's, there's a, clearly a serious drought taking place. So you get, a bit, you get a bit of everything. But I suppose one of the ways of defining development is, uh, is to say, well, it's when people have a sufficient control of their own environment, not just the natural environment, but also the man-made environment, the circumstances they live in, to actually assure themselves a decent life. But what we've learned is that this is not something you can do, it's not formulaic, you can't just apply rule one, rule two, and rule three, and then it happens. You have to work it out in each particular context. Now, I think what looks like in the years ahead, of course, nobody, including myself, is a profit, uh, or is a successful profit. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen next. But what you can do is you can look at the way things are going and some likely permutations, and you can say, well, it's pretty clear that this or that or the other 
are going to be very sensitive issues in Africa over the next few years. So there is great demand, particularly from the newly industrialized nations of Asia, China, India, Malaysia, and so on. There is great demand for um, commodities from Africa, oil, copper, iron ore, wood, and so on. It's also pretty apparent that over the next uh, couple of decades, the world, as the population goes up, it's said to be now about 7 billion, and the projections are that by 2050, it's probably going to be nearer to 9 billion. Over the years, the world is going to have to produce more food. And Africa contains some of the last few substantial areas of fertile land, where, which is hardly being used at present. It's said that 80% of the unused or underused land in the farmland in the world is in Africa. Now, if those figures are anything like correct, it means that there's going to be enormous interest in growing more in Africa, including in areas which at the moment are hardly cultivated at all, in countries like Sudan, Congo, and Angola. Now, how is this going to come about? Will this be because African farmers, small farmers, um, uh, do it themselves? Uh, will it be that some African farmers are able to use more investment and more technology than they can get at the present and therefore become more productive or farm over, over larger areas? In other words, you get a kind of uh, turning from small farmers into, into big farmers. Or will there be foreigners coming in and doing it? And we are seeing at the moment great international interest in investing in land in Africa for agricultural purposes. I have to say that not an enormous amount is known about this. I mean, there's lots of anecdotes. And I myself, in trips around Africa, you know, I hear stories. And I remember being in, in Hong Kong and talking to some Chinese businessmen who'd, who were investing in, in East Africa. And I was asking them what sort of things they were doing and what they were producing and so on. I, that, that recently, a report came out in the United States by a non-governmental organization, which claimed that a lot of this land, being where foreign business people are investing in, is actually being used for growing either biofuels or, or flowers. And of course, the implication is that these things cannot be used to feed people in Africa. But, I mean, nobody really knows, including not even the United Nations, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the extent of this new investment or what it's actually leading to. But it's clearly going to be a massively important subject. And I would say, on the positive side, that if African governments get it right, uh, this could be a very dynamic development indeed, because you could get African countries becoming very successful agricultural exporters a little bit in the manner of Chile or New Zealand or uh, various other parts of the world in the past. Are structures of governance and infrastructure robust enough to take this, this investment, this intrusive investment from outside? Well, I, I think it's widely acknowledged that certainly infrastructure in Africa is deficient. What seems to be happening now is roughly this, that in colonial times, a certain number of railways and uh, all-weather roads were built. Very often, if you look at a map of Africa with the, with the roads and railways on it, you'll see that these go from the interior re regions to the nearest port on the coast. And the reason is obvious, that they were built in colonial times to evacuate uh, export crops or minerals from the areas of production to the nearest port uh, and, then, and then overseas. And it's not for nothing that very many of the biggest cities in Africa are, are port cities, because these were encouraged, these became hubs of 
import and export in colonial times. At the moment, China is building a great deal of infrastructure in Africa, but to quite a large extent, this is simply upgrading the infrastructure that was built 50 or 60 or more years ago, and that's now um, in a state of disrepair. So in other words, it's the same thing, really. It's building roads and railways, sometimes airports, I suppose, which will help evacuate produce from Africa, which is helpful to international trade, but I question whether it's really going to develop Africa, particularly as it's said that only about 11% of Africa's trade is actually between African countries, so much of it goes outside. So certainly, I think there's a general agreement that Africa needs more and better infrastructure, and it would be particularly helpful if it was linking up markets or consumers and producers within Africa rather than importing and exporting from outside the continent. With regard to governance, I think there's also pretty much a concern. You know, the, 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 this is a delicate question, of course, because, because people have strong views on the subject, but I think there's a fairly wide consensus that um, many African countries are not very well governed in a technical sense. In other words, the bureaucracies are inefficient and um, poorly placed to implement policies. The bigger question is what, what, what does one do about this and, and who should do something about it? Um, well, it's interesting that the World Bank is now proposing itself, it, it, it's identifying all these problems, infrastructure, governance and so on, and it's presenting itself as what it calls a partner for African governments and to some extent African societies. So uh, we are seeing, I think we're going to see increasingly, some African countries, particularly the ones with less robust governments, entering into various partnership arrangements with external actors such as the World Bank or maybe in some cases with sovereign states, which happens already, of course, if you see the, the British role in Sierra Leone, the French role in Ivory Coast, certainly until very recently, then uh, the, the American role in Liberia, you see it already. And what about the influence of Asian states? That's a very, very interesting one, of course. They all have quite different policies. China, which I suppose is the most important of all the new Asian actors in Africa, because it's the biggest economy, the second biggest economy in the world now, and also because there's a very considerable number of Chinese people, settlers, if you want to call them that, um, who now live in Africa. Nobody knows how many, but most, most estimates are somewhere between about 300,000 and a million people. That's a lot of people. And they're not by all means, uh, they're not by any means all... Chinese government employees, many of them are just private citizens, some of them quite poor, who've moved to Africa because they think they can make more money there than they can back home in China. So these days you find Chinese shopkeepers and you'll even find Chinese people selling vegetables in the market in some cases alongside their African colleagues or, or competitors. But um, they, uh, China in particular, but I suppose all the all the Asian countries, uh, Malaysia and Korea and so on, which are active, they uh, they come with quite a different historical baggage than the Europeans or the Americans. The Chinese have made great play out of saying, you know, we, we are not an imperialist power. We have no imperialist history in Africa. Um, in as much as we have a recent history in Africa, <clears throat> it was very often uh, 50 years ago helping helping newly independent countries. Um, so this is all quite refreshing, but of course in the end China is there for its own purposes and its own to realize its own needs. 
Um, and uh, it, it's quite clear that Chinese government officials recognize that when you get a difficult situation, let's say Libya right now, they have a duty to protect their own citizens. So they've evacuated several thousand Chinese people from Libya because of the fighting there. And, and I think we're going to find China inevitably and other Asian countries inevitably trying to shape the local political context in African countries to their own uses or their own, their own liking. And that means various forms of intervention. Um, now, that, that may not be, it depends on your, your definition of imperialist, but um, the fact that countries are determinedly anti-imperialist doesn't mean that they do nothing to uh, further their own interests. I'm conscious that we talk about Africa in a very unitary sense here, but uh, do you feel as though the outside world has ever coped with the fact that there is such complexity and such difference within Africa itself? Well, there are now 54, since the independence of South Sudan, there's now 54 sovereign states in Africa, and it is, of course, a huge continent. I think in many respects, the differences between different parts of Africa are far greater than they are, for example, between different parts of Europe. I mean, you know, between the far west and the far east or the far north and the south of Africa, the difference is greater than it is between, say, Dublin and, and Moscow uh, in, in all sorts of respects. So, indeed, we do, uh, including myself, uh, generalize about Africa, which is, which is perfectly permissible, the same way as you can generalize about any other continent or, indeed, about the world as a whole. But um, uh, the, the danger, of course, is, is to think that there is some sort of rule um, that, 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 that's true of all of Africa. Well, there are a few things, and, um, and here we come back to history again, because the, the, the one thing that just about all of Africa has in common is that it was once colonized. And uh, it's fashionable in some circles to say, well, so what? You know, lots of bits of the world were colonized, and that's quite true. So I, I've been thinking for, I am a historian, and I've been thinking for quite a few years to say, well, what, what in the end is so important about the fact that Africa is colonized and what 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 is the difference between the fact between the fact that let's say Africa was was once a colony and that India or Vietnam were once colonies and are now um, widely regarded as very dynamic powers economic powers well I, I think what it comes down to is that it was through colonization especially the partition of Africa in 1885 that Africa was given a place in international legal structures and I think this is absolutely of crucial importance. And it helps to explain the international reaction now to the existence of these fragile states in Africa, because it's, it, it tends to be collective. In, in colonial times, of course, you know, you've got different powerful countries, France and Britain and so on, carving up Africa into zones of influence and, and eventually taking legal responsibility for them. But it tends to be more often some sort of international structure, the so-called international community, or maybe the United Nations, or maybe some subset of that, which which takes responsibility for a particular part of Africa. So this, what colonization really did was to formalize a relationship between individual territories in Africa and some component or other of, 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 of an international community. And that's still very much with us. What kind of trajectory do you think Africa will follow in the coming years? Do you feel as though uh, the signs are there that something will start to work for Africa in the way that you were mentioning when you talked about agriculture? Well, I think something's already working very much for Africa, or at least for a substantial number of Africans. 
and that is continent-wide growth rates of 5% and more. Um, now, you could, there's all sorts of things you can say about like that, like that um, these growth rates are to a large extent fueled by high commodity prices. Um, that's quite true. But nevertheless, there's, uh, there's, there's money going into Africa, and the sheer speed of population increase uh, means that many African countries have now become very substantial markets. Nigeria is now something like 160 million people. And although most of those people are not rich, nevertheless, they buy things, even if it's only relatively small things. Many of them these days have mobile phones. Um, so it's become markets and, and big companies from all over the world want to be present in Africa. And technological invention, uh, innovations, notably mobile phones, mean that these markets are now better integrated than ever before. So you can, for example, you can conduct an advertising campaign and you can actually reach substantial numbers of people who may be interested in what it, whatever it is that you have to sell. And if it's, depending on what it is, may actually have the money to, uh, to pay for it. And you have in some countries quite substantial middle classes. So um, in that sense, things are working for Africa. And if only because of its... Uh, population growth, which continues, I mean, the population growth in Africa over the last 70 or 80 years is the fastest that there's ever been in the entire history of the world. And I was looking at some statistics just about half an hour before we started talking. And it's as, as far as we can see, it's going to stay very, very rapid for the foreseeable future. I mean, the average woman in Africa is now having about five children. And in some countries, it's even higher, it's more like six children. So if this carries on over the next 20 or 30 years, it's going to lead to Africans becoming a really very considerable part of the world's population. At the moment, they're about 13%. But they, it's going to go up and up and up for as long as this population increase goes on. Now, you, it, it's easy to look at that and to really take fright and to say, well, as a result of this high population growth, you're getting every year huge numbers of young people, quite often not very well educated, coming onto the labor market, and there's jobs for them. And when you think about the problems in some parts of Africa of uh, drought or uh, adverse climate change, it's not difficult to produce some really quite frightening scenarios for the not very distant future, for the next 10, 10 years ahead or 15 years ahead. Um, but it's also creating opportunities where some African countries could really succeed. I mean, it, I have to say, well, these things depend on all kinds of chance, really, in, in, in many respects. But it's going to depend crucially on the, the, the policies and the decisions, the policies adopted and the decisions taken by African leaders themselves. And uh, are they up to the job? Well, we'll have to wait and see. What kind of role, uh, we're, we're both sat in Western Europe as we talk now, what kind of role can uh, countries like Britain, like Holland, like France, even like the United States play in, uh, in, in making Africa's future a more positive one? Well, I think the, f the first thing they need to do is to get their, their minds right about the, the state of the world today because um, in European countries, particularly towards Africa, people tend to have, often without knowing it, they tend to have uh, an attitude of, of superiority which has deep roots in the past, not even in colonial times, but going beyond that, back to the days of the slave trade, really. Um, 
this idea that Africa is somehow backward um, and that Europe uh, is, 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 could do something about it if it wanted. Um, uh, and this is what really motivates the, the, uh, the aid business in its, and the development business in their current form. Well, uh, so the first thing to be done, and especially one has to take into account the, um, the, the, the rise or the renaissance of, of, of India and China, and the fact that the world has become a much more complex place in some ways, certainly it's less, in terms of power, it's not so much concentrated in just a small number of poles. Um, so the first thing to be done in those countries is, is instead of having very much going back to the familiar arguments of the aid business to say what can we do, can we give more money, do we give it to the government, do we give it to non-governmental organizations, do we invest in agriculture or, 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 or something else, um, is, to, is to think hard about um, the state of the world today and the role of Africa in it, which is what I try to do in this, in this short book. Now, if you do that, you may still think that um, a wealthy country, Britain, say, with a very particular role as an ex-colonial power, has, um, ha has a, a role to play in development or, 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 or in, in, giving, in giving aid. I mean, you, might, you may still come to that conclusion, but I think you have to do it on a radically different basis from, from, from the traditional one. And what kind of message do you think that uh, a reader of your book will come away with? What's the key thing that you're trying to get across? Um, I suppose the key thing I'm trying to get across is that very many of us, not only Europeans, but also in many respects Africans also, are working with very outdated ideologies. And this doesn't help them at all in understanding the situation. Um, beyond that, uh, to my surprise, I found the book when I first presented it, uh, I saw some Twitter messages where it was being described as um, a, a, a book of an Afro-optimist. Well, I have to say, I really dislike this idea that you're either an Afro-optimist or an Afro-pessimist and you can't be anything else. So I, I, I would reject it on those grounds. But indeed, um, there's a lot of interesting things going on in Africa and a lot of things which you can, you can be quite positive about. And if people only take that away from the book, then, uh, well, I won't be displeased, although I'd prefer it if they, were, if they, could, you know, if they could maybe read it on a slightly deeper level as well. Mm -hmm. Well, finally, uh, I'd like to ask a much more general question. Do you have a favourite place in Africa? Oof. Um, well, I, you know, I've been to most, like I said, there's 54 African countries now, and I've, I've been to most of them. Um, Which is no mean feat. Yeah. Uh, and these, these days, I go most often to South Africa because I'm required to do so for my work. And I go there with great pleasure because it's a, it's a very interesting country and I have a lot of friends there. So I suppose these days I would say... South Africa, but in the past, I used to, when I lived in Madagascar, and I was, abs I, did, I did my PhD on Madagascar, and I was absolutely fascinated by it, I used to love it, but um, I, I don't go there so often now, so I suppose it's sort of fallen out of favour, and I've often thought that Ghana is a fantastic country as well, I mean, a very, um, a very in many ways, a very deeply civilised country, um, it's been through some very difficult times, but people have, um, have always reacted with uh, humour and great dignity. Can you be more specific? I mean, just just tell us something about, for instance, Madagascar. What was it there that, that or was there a particular place there? Was it Antananarivo or was it somewhere up in the north or, or what? 
Well, I was living in Antananarivo, and like I said, I was I was I was writing my doing my history, my research for a history PhD on on Madagascar. So I became very interested in the history, and it does have a most fascinating history because, of course, throughout the centuries, there's been immigrants coming to Madagascar from Africa, but also from Indonesia um, and from the Middle East. So it's um, although it very much has its own character and its own language and so on. Um, it, it, it reflects an, an enormous uh, variety of influences from all around the Indian Ocean, which I, I had no idea about this, so I found it absolutely fascinating. And you can still see that in many ways in, 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 you know, in modern ways of behaving and in doing things in Madagascar. So I guess I found it fascinating for all those reasons. Plus, it's a, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful and surprising place. I mean, it's a, it's a huge island. It's, it's bigger than France. <laughs> It's about the size, they say it's the size of, about twice the size of Great Britain. Um, and so you have all sorts of landscapes there from desert to, you know, highland plateaus and so on to tropical rainforest and very nice beaches in parts of it. So I was, I, I, I suppose really I was fascinated by the history of it more than anything. Um, whereas with South Africa, for example, uh, apart from its very generally very hospitable people and um, beautiful landscapes, the thing that I like best, I mean, maybe this, maybe this is going to sound a bit prosaic, but it's one of the very few African countries where you can just uh, get in a car and drive. Um, you can hire a car for not very much money, and the, the roads are good, so you can cover large distances. Um, uh, you know, you can always find somewhere to stay, bed and breakfast or something. So it makes it a pleasure just to travel around, whereas in many parts of Africa, it's also a pleasure to travel around, but you have to have plenty of time. Yes, and perseverance. And perseverance. Anyway, Professor Rellis, thank you so much indeed for, for, for joining us and giving us your time. That was fascinating. Okay, thank you very much. That was my interview with Stephen Ellis, the author of Season of Rains, Africa in the World, an attempt to place modern Africa in the context of a fast-changing planet, and an excellent and informative read. I'm Nicholas Walton, the host of New Books in African Studies, wishing you all the best from here in London. Goodbye. <laughs>